0: With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson.
1: Good morning and thank you for joining us today on the Agnet News Hour. Coming up later, organic production goes beyond the popular buzzwords, we'll tell you how. And the USDA is starting up national agricultural classification surveys, but our top story today. The latest USDA orange production forecast for the country shows a rise from previous surveys. Here's Rod Bain.
2: An estimated 2% increase in total oranges produced in the U.S. this month is expected to raise production up 12% from 2022-23's final utilization. Mark Hudson of USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service says, interestingly, the breakdown from his home state, Florida, shows...
3: There's no change from previous month. In fact, our estimate of 7.5 million boxes of non valencias and 13 million boxes of Valencia oranges are the same now as they were in October when for our first forecast. It seems like the size and the drop is kind of holding steady and we're on a rush
4: Models, so we think we're in a pretty good spot.
2: The all orange production number rose thanks to quarterly reports coming in on both California's and Texas's crops. Orange production in the Golden State is forecasted up 3% from the previous one, and the Lone Star State's all orange totals are up an estimated 19% in that same time period. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: And as Gary Crawford reports, orangers weren't the only changes in the latest crop reports. Here's Gary.
3: USDA's latest round of crop reports had a couple of mild surprises for traders. First, USDA forecasting a bigger corn crop than previously reported, bigger than most traders expected. USDA now looking at a 15.3 billion bushel crop. It had been saying 15.2. Either way, a record crop boosted by USDA's new improved corn yield estimate, 177.3 bushels an acre, taking corn yields also into the record books. For soybeans, USDA raising its previous yield forecast by about 1%. Taking it to the fourth highest ever, soybean crop now estimated just under 4.2 billion bushels, still down from the year before by 2%. And there was yet another surprise in the reports for the cotton market. USDA had been forecasting a 12% smaller cotton crop this year, now looks to be 14% smaller crop at 12.4 million bales. Even though yields look better than before, USDA upped its estimate of the number of acres that had to be abandoned because of drought. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: Carbon credits are an evolving market as more players get involved and as demand continues to rise. So how do you know that you're making the right decision when or if you decide to enter the carbon market on your farm? Travis Kraft is the director of sales for Indigo Ag in the carbon credit space and offers some perspective. First, he talks about Indigo Ag's start in the carbon market.
5: 2020, 2021, we really started to look hard on how our uh, our products were performing in the industry, but also how growers were transitioning at, at, at the ping word at that time was regenerative ag, right? How do we get involved with that? What, what changes can we help make through cover cropping, through uh, grazing livestock, through tillage, different things like that? But as we got into remote sensing data and really getting deep into soil science, that's when it really got special from a standpoint of we can help make real tangible change and show the data behind it and assist that grower or whoever we're working with with the correct information to help maximize their efficiencies and get past where they may be stuck at.
1: Indigo Ag works directly with farmers and others in the industry through their carbon product.
5: We have a program where a grower uh, enrolls with us, and then we do all the data measurements. We, also, we then go and sell the credits on their behalf. They get 75% of that credit up front, and then it stacks year over year over year for as long as they're in the program. So every time they make a practice change, every time that they do something more, um, I guess, sustainable on their farm, it continues to bump that payment up year over year over year.
1: The big question farmers have is how much their carbon is worth.
5: There is multiple metrics to actually talk about whether you are at risk of a reversal, meaning that you could let carbon back into the atmosphere, or you have a permanence factor, meaning it's gonna go deep into the soil. The more your permanence factor goes up, the higher that carbon credit is worth. So whether you're sitting at 37, 47, $57 a credit, the longer that thing stays in the soil or the more practices that you can prove that you've done over time, the higher that credit value would be worth today and in the future as well. If you're just currently just turning and turning and turning, the value of those credits is going to be very little. You can look at any other industry. There are over 175 different carbon credit financial models in the world. Ag fits a very small space, only 8% of the entire market, but they're worth the most because they have the largest amount of opportunity to sequester that much more carbon.
1: He says right now growers are in a good position where the demand for carbon credits is high, but the supply is low right now as farms contemplate whether it's a good idea or not to jump in. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more of the day's agriculture news. You're listening to the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. In today's National Spotlight, Chuck Zimmerman has an interview from the Beltwide Cotton Conference.
6: At the Beltwide Cotton Conferences, I'm visiting with Jim Olvey, who's one of the uh, presenters here in the cotton improvement uh, session. Uh, Jim, you've got an interesting topic here, and I'm going to let you, uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and then uh, this uh, work that you're doing.
7: Uh, my name is Jim Alvey I work with my son Mike Uh, we own a private seed company as well as do a lot of research on diseases the topic today is going to be on fusarium race 4 and the resistance Uh, we found it in the field in California in 97 Uh, over time we've developed resistance in the Pima varieties in 2016, uh, my son and myself found Race 4 in the West Texas area and New Mexico, and immediately knew it was spreading. And it was into upland cotton, which we normally don't deal with too much. And so um, Dr. Jones with Cotton Incorporated, uh, ourselves, Clemson, got together to try and figure out how we can solve the problem. And so we have developed resistant upland varieties. Uh, We've developed advanced lines. Um, Dr. Sasky with Clemson um, has found the genes for resistance. Um, So it's been a great collaborative effort between private industry, public sector, and Cotton Incorporated. Uh, So it's it's truly a unique uh, problem-solving approach.
6: So as a problem, how significant is it or can it be?
7: The uh, RACE 4 came into California in 1990. We were growing at the time 1.2 million acres of Akela cotton. Today it's 50,000 acres. It devastated the, the entire Akela market. Uh, it also affected the Pima market, but fortunately Dr. Joel Mayhill with Phytogen and myself found resistance in Pimas uh, some 15 years ago, so that's why they're able to grow Pima in California and also West Texas and part of Arizona. So, yeah, it's uh, it was an ongoing problem, and uh, I think we're really close to solving it.
6: I was going to say, where, where do things stand right now, and what do you see kind of looking ahead?
7: We uh, have developed advanced lines that are resistant to it, uh, upland lines. This year, we're going to spend a lot of our time working with different seed companies with different varieties. Uh, anything that's commercial, we would like to test in our Race 4 Nursery in Clint, Texas and find out how many of the commercial varieties that the growers grow actually uh, have resistance. I would suspect it's very few.
6: So I imagine you're having an, op- uh, an opportunity here to be able to you know, share that, but talk to other people who may have ideas or hopefully can, um, you know, take what you're doing and possibly help themselves. No, we're,
7: we've been extremely open. Our testing, we've allowed state researchers, federal growers, seed companies, Cotton Incorporated, everybody. Uh, we also educate them on the disease since it's it's new to most of these other areas, Um, and explain what we were doing, how we were doing it, and so it's, uh, it's been an adventure.
6: All right, well, thank you very much for visiting here with me, Jim. We're at the White Cotton Conferences. I'm Chuck Zimmerman.
1: That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's Will Jordan with the Livestock Report.
8: In today's Livestock News... Agricultural producers work tirelessly to provide wholesome and safe food to American consumers. The dairy industry has dealt with juices deemed as milk, and the livestock industry has dealt with plant-based protein before consumer preference led to its decline. As cell-cultured meat continues to grow in the national conversation, it's important to hear all sides of the story. According to the Congressional Research Service, developing cell-cultured meat occurs in a laboratory setting and involves five steps. First, taking a biopsy of animal cells second, sell banking, third, sell growth, fourth, harvesting, and fifth, food processing. Nutritious, safe, and consistent quality is the goal of U.S. cattle producers as they raise beef for discerning consumers domestically and abroad. For cow-calf producers' perspective on the issue, I visit with Mark Isley, NCBA President-Elect.
9: Not only is just a cattle producer, I'm also really concerned for the consumers. Uh, here's a product that has unknown quantities. Uh, we don't know exactly, you know, what the goal end goal here is other than displace beef. Uh, cell-cultured meat is actually drawn from terminal cells uh, created in a bioreactor. It's basically a cancer cell being regenerated. It has no flavor. It's not a whole muscle cut. And I think the intent is to use it in grind, hamburgers, that sort of thing, probably work it into school nutrition problems. Parents and consumers should be really concerned about this. Our big deal is that the uh, usda's food inspection uh, service should be overseeing this make sure it's labeled properly uh, ha- last time milk made a big mistake they let the fda uh, do the milk and they didn't do a good job now you've got all kinds of competitors and consumers are drinking milk that really is milk like almond milk etc and so forth we need to make sure that they're aware where their beef really comes from. And that's something that uh, is done in uh, regular beef, is done in a sustainable, responsible manner, great taste, great nutrition, all those things. Uh, some of the companies that are doing that, they don't have any concern about stewardship. Uh, it's about making money, and, and it'll end up putting a lot of producers out of business. And that also causes irreparable harm to the environment where those cattle reside, uh, with overgrowth, uh, degraded grass quality, fire loads. in the, So there's multiple ramifications. But our big deal is for the consumers. We want to make sure that they know what they're getting, that they're still getting good product, and they're not being deceived by mislabeling.
8: Isley shared the concerns he has for the consequences of cultivated meat.
9: We're not really sure how it's going to turn out. When you're using terminal cells in a cancer-producing type environment, like a bioreactor, what are the ramifications of that? Is there genetic concerns? Folks that don't like GMOs should be all over this thing. Uh, those folks could be darting, starting to do some gene editing to these terminal cells. We're really not sure where this product's going to start. We're not really sure where it's going to end. So, for the concern of their kids, their families, and the nutrition, uh, it's tough to substitute real beef for for an inferior product. For AgNet West, I'm Will Jordan.
1: This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's Agnet West headlines, here's Agnet West Farm News Director, Brian German.
0: Consumer preferences are driving more and more conversations with words like climate-smart, regenerative, and eco-friendly when it comes to farming practices. Founder of Abundant Harvest Organics, Vernon Peterson, said that there's real sincere value in organic production, that goes beyond whatever buzzwords may be popular at the time with consumers. There's other words
10: that have come along, sustainable. You know, what we call weasel words, greenwashing words. So sustainable, regenerative, what's some other stuff. It's not sprayed, that kind of junk that you hear at a farmer's market, you know. But consumers know we've got a problem. Consumers know there's health issues. And they have a sneaking hunch that a big part of those health issues are due to the food they're eating. Organic pulls the toxin out
8: of the production cycle.
0: The U.S. Department of Agriculture is set to conduct the National Agricultural Classification Survey beginning January 24th. USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service will be conducting the survey as part of the preparations for the 2027 Census of Agriculture. Approximately 250,000 recipients will receive the survey determining eligibility for the 2027 Census Questionnaire. The survey aims to ensure that every U.S. producer, regardless of operation size, is counted in the influential Agricultural Census data. Survey recipients are encouraged to respond online using the unique survey code or mail back completed questionnaires in the provided prepaid envelope. The Census of Agriculture, conducted once every five years, remains a crucial source of comprehensive data informing agricultural policies and programs, with the 2022 Census data set for release in February. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Foreign Agricultural Service is granting over $203 million to 70 agricultural organizations to boost U.S. food and agricultural product exports through the Market Access Program and Foreign Market Development Program. MAP will allocate more than $174 million to 68 nonprofit organizations and cooperatives supporting consumer promotion, brand promotion for small companies, and promotion of various agricultural products. FMD will provide $27 million to 20 trade organizations representing U.S. ag producers focusing on generic promotion of U.S. commodities. FAS Administrator Daniel Whitley highlighted the substantial impact of MAP and FMD on expanding U.S. exports globally, noting that each dollar invested results in over a $24 increase in agricultural exports. trunk disease symptoms can often be mistaken for other issues. Research plant pathologist with USDA's Agricultural Research Service, Kendra Baumgartner, said ESCA can often give the appearance of nutrient deficiency.
11: Because it causes the leaves to develop this discoloration that can be in between the veins of the leaves or around the edges of the leaves. And there are certain nutrient deficiencies that can cause that. And I think it's mistaken for nutrient deficiencies that might cause a discoloration on the vine, but might not impact kind of the overall vigor. Of the vine. You know, the vine can be perfectly vigorous, just has these odd colored leaves. And so people might think, oh, that's just some nutrient deficiency. Hopefully it'll improve itself, or I'll put on an application of a fertilizer to help address that. And, you know, it just doesn't help it.
0: The National Organic Coalition is partnering with the Organic Farmers Association and Organic Farming Research Foundation to host a series of virtual farmer to farmer networking sessions. The Seeds of Success series is designed to be informal spaces for farmers to share their challenges and successes and will provide farmers with an opportunity to have open conversations on important topics. The second virtual meeting in the series is scheduled for January 30th and is titled Demystifying the National Organic Standards Board. It will be an interactive networking session for organic and transitioning farmers where a panel of farmers and advocates will explain the role of the board in shaping organic standards and allowed materials, the process the board uses to make decisions, and explain how industry feedback can make a difference in board decisions. More information about the virtual event is available at nationalorganiccoalition.org. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Another
1: chance to sign up for Continuous CRP, that's coming up on this Land of ours. The USDA is again accepting applications for the Continuous Conservation Reserve Program. The program from the Farm Service Agency provides ag producers and other landowners with conservation opportunities for their land in exchange for yearly rental payments. It also includes the Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program offered by FSA partners. In addition, those already participating in CRP can now apply to re-enroll if their contracts expire this year. FSA Administrator Zach Ducheneau says, Continuous CRP is one of the best conservation tools we can provide producers and landowners. He says whether a producer wants to focus on water quality benefits or work with one of our partners to address natural resource concerns in their areas, the program offers many options to help meet those resource conservation goals. To submit an offer, producers and landowners should contact their local FSA office by July 31st. This is the Agnet News Hour. We will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back. What is it about the historical and cultural connections of apples in our nation and around the world that makes USDA's apple genetic collection in New York State unique? Rod Bain tells us.
2: Perhaps
4: a passion about apples? What really makes the apple collection unique is that it's so beloved by so many people.
2: Ben Gutierrez is a USDA geneticist at the Agricultural Research Service Plant Genetic Resource Unit in New York State. That facility houses one of the world's largest At most diverse collections of apple cultivars and genetic materials.
4: There's about 5,000 unique accessions that we keep here. And the composition really is 1,400 of those are named cultivars, so they have a unique history. They've been used in dessert or cider making. That's not very many. So the rest of them are these wild materials or hybrids that are like maybe not the thing you think of when you go to the grocery store, but our collection is uniquely wild.
2: But what is behind the passion regarding this palm fruit in general and this collection of apple genes and materials specifically. Gutierrez says the apple collection provides genetic tools for future varieties.
4: It's what it's going to set apple breeding forward in the future. These are the unique disease resistance traits or fruit quality. So a lot of the novel flavors that we get in some of these apple hybrids come from these wild parents.
2: And with a collection representing all apple growing regions of the world, the ARS facility in Geneva, New York, offers a connection
4: with history and culture. There's deep cultural connections, not just within the US, but throughout the world. Other cultures, their apples are represented here and they get excited to know that we've got Russian apples and French and apples really from all over the temperate regions where they're found natively.
2: Gutierrez says beyond the cultural connections, are stories associated with several of these apple varieties.
4: Through cloning and grafting, some of the cultivars that we have have been around the Roman period. So we have the Lady Apple, which can trace back its lineage thousand plus years, or the Roxbury Russet, which is truly one of the first American apples that were developed here. So we had early American settlers coming in, and they brought apples from Europe. So this apple uniquely represents this new culture, this new thing that began in America. And so people do get excited and passionate about these stories that come from the apple.
2: USDA researchers have played a role in these stories and not just with breeding efforts at research facilities. Scientists and geneticists have traced the history of apples to Central Asia, specifically Kazakhstan as point zero in its genetic evolution.
4: Before then, it was kind of a mystery. So because of ARS efforts to go and collect germplasm, we kind of were able to piece together this story of apple coming out of Asia, its hybrid nature. Before then, it was kind of assumed that it had always kind of existed in this way or had been domesticated.
2: I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C.
1: Do you have the bleak midwinter gardening blues? An expert has some remedies. Here's Gary Crawford with more.
3: What you're hearing right now is the snow plow going up and down my street, plowing open the road and plowing in my poor car that's parked on the curb. Winter, some people like it. I don't. A lot of folks don't. And for people who love gardening outside and all, this has to be a really bleak, dire time of year. Yes, it is. Uh, Ward Upham, he's an extension horticultural expert at Kansas State University. He knows what a depressing time it can be for people who love to go out and garden. Yeah. It's terrible.
12: One of the reasons I think they send out seed catalogs this early is just because uh, that gives people something to dream about.
5: Dream when you're feeling
3: blue. Yes, dream, but Ward Upham told us, you know, we can do more than just dream. There are things to do.
12: You know, make plans for this coming year, and that can be enjoyable in and of itself. Even though you're not able to get outside, you can make all your plans now and and figure out what plants you like, you know, all that type of thing.
3: And also there are some things we can actually do uh, hands-on, especially if our plan includes trying to raise plants from seeds this winter.
12: One is get everything together. If you're going to grow from seed, you know, transplants from seed, now is the time to make sure you have everything you need. You know, get all your seed ordered.
3: Yeah, so now the seedy part of our story. We're looking around, and, and we come across uh, in our garden stuff some seed packets we didn't know we had, obviously didn't use them last year. So, Ward, are these uh, seeds worth trying to use this season? I mean, how long can they last?
12: Normally, with most of our seeds, about three years, they will still have acceptable viability. And so if you're unsure and you have a lot of seeds It may be a good idea just to test germinate some. In other words, put like 10 seeds on a moist paper towel, wrap it all up, put it in a plastic bag, and then put it like on top of the refrigerator so it has a little bit of heat. And then after a week, check it. See how many of those seeds have germinated and then maybe leave it another week and get a percent germination count. That's going to tell you how viable that seed is and whether it's going to be worth keeping or not.
3: And, of course, it may not be worth keeping. Even if it's good, it may not be the type suited to our region. Maybe that's why we didn't use those seeds in the first place.
12: Variety is really important. Is it well adapted to your area? Not all those varieties are going to work well in all parts of the country.
3: And Ward says if you are new to gardening or new to a region or both, might be a good idea to find out what's best for your area.
12: Sources of information would be the University Extension Service in your area, uh, local garden centers. Those are good sources of information so you can find out what is going to work well for you.
3: Next time, some things we need to know and stuff we need to have if we are dreaming about starting those garden plants from seeds. So dream- And no nightmares either. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture.
1: A 40-year-old legal doctrine known as the Chevron Defense Doctrine is going before the Supreme Court. Chad Smith has more on a little-known legal policy with big effects on agriculture.
13: A controversial legal doctrine with wide-ranging impacts may come to an end soon. Travis Cushman, Deputy General Counsel for Litigation and Public Policy with the American Farm Bureau, explains the premise of the Chevron Deference Doctrine.
14: What it does is it instructs courts to defer to a federal agency's interpretation of a legal statute. Unfortunately, what it has done in practice is it's led to the creation of a super branch of government and the burgeoning of the administrative state. What happens is federal agencies are able to interpret and craft the laws as they see fit without input from Congress or the role of the judiciary in providing a check federal agencies.
13: Cushman says the Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments determining the future of the doctrine.
14: The Supreme Court for years has been looking at this closer and closer and it has finally agreed to evaluate whether or not this doctrine should be overturned. On January 17th, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in two cases that seek to overturn Chevron.
13: He talks about what the Supreme Court's decision could mean for U.S. farmers and ranchers. The case could have pretty
14: significant and far-reaching impacts on how government operates, returning greater power to, to Congress and the courts and making it harder for federal agencies to push their power. That means the governing agencies that regulate agriculture will have much less ability to arbitrarily enact laws they shouldn't be doing, including many key environmental statutes like the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. Chad Smith, Washington.
1: Don't forget if you've missed any of our morning shows or if you just want to catch the news at a different time, you can subscribe to our podcast and have statewide agriculture news at your convenience. All you have to do is search for the Agnet News Hour on your favorite podcast downloading app. That's Agnet News Hour, and it is available on Android and Apple devices. This is the Agnet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will return in just a moment. For today's featured interview, we continue the conversation with Shannon Douglas, the new California Farm Bureau president, conversation we started on Monday. We have her on the phone, and also on the phone with us is Anna Genesi from the Stanislaus County Farm Bureau. You know, and there was something else new within the California Farm Bureau. I understand that there is a new county chapter, and this was another surprise for me when I heard this, but San Francisco um, is now a member of California Farm Bureau. Tell me about that.
11: They are. So... That's been a project that's been um, happening uh, a little bit quietly, maybe one could argue, for the last, uh, a little over a year, actually. Uh, and we had some members there, uh, well, now members, right, but uh, some uh, farmers out of that area and people involved and passionate about agriculture that were uh, interested in a farm bureau and kind of really started to ask them the question of why doesn't San Francisco have a county farm bureau and um, really, they just hadn't. You know, for people that don't know, the city and the county of San Francisco are one and the same. Uh, so it is a very urban environment. Um, but there are indeed farmers that live in San Francisco. Uh, there are some that uh, live and farm there in a, in a more urban setting. But we also have a lot, their number anyway, that are uh, farmers who are farmers in other areas and uh, make the city their home for one reason uh, or another, and so, our members in December it came before our uh, member delegation, and they did approve adding uh, San Francisco County Farm Bureau, which was exciting. And they shared a little bit about their interest in wanting to, um, you know, utilize their urban influence uh, to to help other farmers. And so we are, you know, looking forward to working with them. It is brand new, um, but. Uh, was, was an exciting addition, a bit of a surprise to some, but um, an addition that our members approved back in December,
1: yeah. There has been an, a, a focus on um, urban agriculture just kind of nationally, in fact, in the last few years, getting more of an understanding of urban agriculture and getting more urban city centers Um, involved in agriculture. With having San Francisco now part of Farm Bureau, um, what does that say as far as the progress of that?
11: Yeah, you know, I think it indicates that there is this interest there, and it's something that maybe we're all still trying to figure out. It's still something as far as, you know, nationally, this interest in in urban ag, but realizing that that farms can look uh, different from place to place. And These urban opportunities are sometimes a great way to, you know, interface with our community. Um, You know, people in San Francisco don't experience a traditional farm like they would uh, in the Valley, Um, and so exposing them to agriculture, uh, you know, we think has value. Uh, That's why with California Farm Bureau, for a number of years, we've had our uh, television show and our magazine publication that you've probably seen over the years, California Bountiful, uh, and helping to educate these more urban uh, members, uh, whether they're members of farm here really, but uh, both urban uh, people about uh, agriculture and about what's going on on farms and the great work that our farmers and ranchers do. So I think this just kind of shows there's this continued interest in it. and um, you know, and I think an understanding again from even from our members that really um, our farms can can look different, uh, but also the connection to our urban neighbors has value
1: yeah those are all very good points you know i wanted to ask you um can you you've you've mentioned several times over the course of our interview but let's bring it all into one um one question here tell me about the importance of farm bureau and why it is important that people are members yeah.
11: so farm bureau is a critically important resource for the farmers and ranchers really across the United States. And so, whether it's in your county, and you all have a fantastic uh, county farm bureau uh, with great staff working on your behalf at local, on local issues, and to some degree, statewide issues too. To be uh, clear, the Stanislaus County Farm Bureau staff is very engaged, um, as are our counties you know across the state. And so, they're a really important resource right in your backyard for everything from, you know, navigating a local regulation to representing our farm interests on uh, planning commissions and at county supervisors and for, you know, zoning changes and um, potentially local water ordinances, right? has been a huge issue over the last uh, couple of years, particularly. But the advocacy that California Farm Bureau does at the statewide level and nationally really is critically important because our farmers... We want to be farming, right? Everybody wants – that's what they want to do. You wouldn't do this job if you didn't love being a farmer on the farm. And so the time has to nature to track regulations and be following it all and trying to keep up to date on um, you know, just a tremendous amount of reading involved alone, right? It's something our members – individually don't have time for. But it's critical that as a group that we work together on these issues because we are so much stronger when we collaborate. And that's really what Farm has done for over 100 years is we've represented a cross-section of commodities and locations and types of farming. To be clear, you know, we have farmers who are, um, you know, biodynamic and regenerative and organic and those who are very traditional and conventional and everything in between, and we represent Uh, probably, I would argue probably every uh, crop grown in this uh, great state. And the diversity that that represents can be challenging, of course, sometimes. Um, You know, what's good for one isn't always good for everybody, but we look at the whole and what's best for all of us as a unified voice in agriculture. And that's really what we do at Farm Bureau. And I think it's such an important tool, really, for a farmer in California in particular to have and The the value you get out of your membership is really tremendous, and if you care about keeping your farm in your family or really running, maybe it won't go to your family, it'll go to somebody else, but your farm uh, in business for generations to come, you really should be a member of California Farm Bureau and a member of your, of course, your local county Farm Bureau uh, to start with, but your membership matters and makes a difference and really does help keep people uh, farming in California.
1: Well, Shannon, those are all of the questions that I had for you. But if you have anything else that you would like for our listeners to know, I would like to open it up to you.
11: Um, I'm just really glad that you, uh, you know, provided this opportunity today, and that you guys are working together. I think this is, I you know, a wonderful collaboration. But I do want people to know that we we want their involvement and their activity uh, within Farm Bureau. We are, you know, smaller segment of the industry these days, right? When we're uh, talking to people, we know that farmers are, we used to say 2%, right? And now we're like, mm-hmm. it's it's a hunk smaller than that even. Uh, so while we are a smaller part of the, part of the population, the actual growers, you know, of course, are um, supporting industries and, and others, you know, do make up a bigger hunk altogether. But Our combined voice really does matter and to really fight for agriculture in the coming years, it's going to take our combined effort. And so if there's anybody out there who's been thinking about whether it's joining or getting more involved, know that there is an opportunity for you. And if you don't have time to come to, you know, a monthly meeting uh, of the board of directors, I'm really confident that if you call up Santa Claus County Farm Bureau today and tell them you want to get more involved, there's a place and an opportunity um, that we would love to engage uh, with you on. And so I'd encourage people, you know, not everybody has time for meetings perhaps, but there's definitely a way for you to be involved and make a difference for our industry as a whole because we, we need everybody at the table.
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time. I want to hand it back to Anna and see if, Anna, if you have any other questions or anything else that you would like to discuss? Yeah, I
11: just want to say uh, thank you to both Agnet West and Shannon for, you know, making this opportunity available for us. And, and from a county Farm Bureau perspective, I I double down on Shannon's comments around, you know, we're always looking for involvement Um You know what's the line? If you're you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so, our ability to come together and have a voice locally and at the state and nationally is kind of the beauty of how farm bureau um, is put together. So, uh, always feel free to give us a ring um, here in Stanislaus County, or if this isn't your home, um, call call your county farm bureau.
1: Welcome back to the Agnet News Hour. To finish up our hour today, ponds provide multiple fishing opportunities, whether those bodies of water are natural or man made, used for aquaculture or recreation. Here's Rod Bain with more.
2: Whether it is a commercial freshwater fish operation or a body of water on property used for recreation, ponds offer opportunity to cast a line and spend time fishing. Chuck Sikra of University of Florida Extension adds,
10: Ponds vary a lot, both in how they're built and what they're used for, but they can all provide tremendous fishing opportunities for people.
2: There are several kinds of both natural and man-made ponds, some you might be familiar with, perhaps even as a favorite fishing hole. For examples of natural pods,
10: there could be really shallow kind of weedy ponds, maybe housing, northern pike, yellow perch, bass, bluegill. Up in Michigan, they had sinkhole ponds, which were formed by glaciers. They were really deep, often had trout in them, sometimes bass, bluegills. Down south, we have sinkhole ponds where the ground collapses and we end up with a deep pond. Lots of shallow cypress ponds, beaver ponds, often support trout on small streams, maybe bass, bluegill. Man-made pods include impoundment where people maybe dam up a small watershed or a small stream, spring run. And it's nice because we can manipulate the water levels. And then there's a lot of dugout ponds where in Texas, I worked on stock tanks. We're on the side of a hill. They would dig out a pond, take the dirt, build a small levee. And then as water runs down the hill, they have a pond used for watering livestock, but also can provide some good fishing opportunities. A lot of places we have high water table right below the ground. So if you scoop out the dirt, your pond is sitting in that, surficial water table with that type of pond you often don't have any way to control water levels
2: sikra points out that man made ponds are primarily constructed for aquaculture purposes.
10: Those ponds are built so a seine could be pulled through and fish either partially harvested or totally harvested. So the advantage of man-made ponds is really towards the aquaculture fish production standpoint. Somebody wanting a few ponds to grow say some catfish or maybe up north, where generally trout are done more in raceways, flowing often concrete or long shallow
2: ponds where the water flows down through from a spring. A growing number of ponds are becoming part of agritourism operations.
10: In Florida, we have a lot of 20, 30, 40 acre, quote unquote ponds. People don't fish them a lot, so they may actually lease them to a small group of people, a family, just like people lease hunting lands for say deer hunting, quail hunting, and restrict who can have access to it.
1: That's today's agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us.
0: To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit AgnetWest online at AgnetWest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at AgnetWest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halbertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. AgnetWest Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.